0: Patrick Barber, who is the president of Pacific Union Real Estate, sits down with us here today and talks about all things real estate. He's on so many boards here in San Francisco, an influential man. He's my friend, a native San Franciscan, and all around good guy. So Patrick, before we start in on some of the other real estate things and, and the things you do um, for uh, for an occupation, but like, what about what, what about I, as a San Franciscan or a guy who grew up here? Um, if you evaluate what is what was it like to grow up in San Francisco, and what might it look like through uh, someone in their late twenties, like a millennial, and then what might your your children, uh, you know? Teenagers look like so start with like what was it like yeah. to grow up in San Francisco,
1: you know San Francisco is the most amazing city. I think in the world uh, I've certainly spent a lot of time traveling and, and visiting other parts of the world But there's something about this little city on the hill on the bay with the incredible vistas And growing up here, you know, probably like everybody's hometown. It was just my hometown I didn't think much of it other than it was a very easy town to grow up in because it's seven miles by seven miles, so you're close to everything. Um, when I was growing up, we didn't have, the museums weren't as good, the theater wasn't as good, the ballet wasn't as good, the opera wasn't as good, but over the years, there's been so much investment in the city, and you know, we have world-class arts, we have world-class parks, we have, you know, better transportation certainly than we've ever probably had in the history of the city, and um, you know, it's just a remarkable place. The hard part, I think, about these 20-year-olds and millennials and th- that are here now is it's just a little bit faster and a little bit less personal. And it's just the world is so go, go, go now that people are always on their devices and people are always working and people are always... You know, walking from here to there without even paying attention to the vistas, let alone the beautiful architecture, let alone the beautiful person walking beside them or by them to say hello. So I think the city's lost a little bit of that neighborly just love that... Mm. I grew up with and still, you know, I prefer to go into a bank and talk to a teller. I prefer, you know, if there was Golden Gate Bridge toll takers, I would still go through and probably still hand them my $5 and thank them very much. And that's a part of San Francisco that I think is, is going away. And then for my children, I have a, a 14-year-old and an 11-year-old, a boy and a girl, and I feel blessed that I'm able to raise them in San Francisco. I always say to my my beautiful bride that um, you know it's it's great to grow up in the beautiful safety of the the suburbs, and she grew up in Arinda, and we have lots of friends in Marin. But being able to afford to raise our children in the city and to send them to, you know, incredible, unfortunately, private schools. The public schools have gotten much better. And I'm sure Scott Wiener talked a little bit about that when you had your podcast with him. I mean, the city is making good strides, but there's a long way to go. And I think for the children, you know, it's it's harder on those that don't have the means to to really – you know, send them to private school and take, take care of them.
0: Do you think it's comfortable for them? Do you think that they feel the busyness uh, of the city versus you felt a calm in the city growing up? Or is it just the way it is, man?
1: Yeah, good question. So it's that street smart of growing up in the city where you never can be too comfortable. So growing up, you know, I'd go out to Seventh and Clement to Gordon's Sporting Goods to get my tennis shoes once every two years when I saved up enough money for that next pair of Nikes, or you know, to get that skateboard. You had to look over your shoulder. I mean, there were there were Chinese gangs in on Clement Street at Sixth Avenue then, and there's probably uh, you know now probably. So it's not that it was you know super comfortable. It was just people related to each other more. The neighborhoods were more neighborhoody because. You know, they were just, you know, North Beach was all North Beach. Chinatown was Chinatown. South of Market, you know, was just fun. You know, that's where Butterfields was and warehouses. And, you mm-hmm. know, now the whole city's kind of all put in a shaker glass and shaken up and kind of spilled back out. I mean, there's bars and restaurants and high-end furniture stores everywhere now. That, that just wasn't the way it was when I was growing up. You had real neighborhoods with real, you know, fabrics of, of what that neighborhood meant.
0: What like sort of uh futures are you looking for like like you know it's nice to be nostalgic and love this charm, yeah. but what are the futures like if you could put plant something in yeah yeah you know, maybe transportation or where do you see the your perfect city going? Yes. Well, I think
1: transportation's a big one. I love seeing all the bicycle lanes. I love that people have the freedom to move around the city by foot and on bicycles because quite frankly, again, <sighs> the city's only seven miles by seven miles and the driving traffic has become... Oh, it's yeah, it's tactic. Beca- It's become almost untenable. Um, but I think the future of the city is hopefully leadership and a government that actually does what the people want instead of what they need to do to get elected for the next four years. And obviously I'm not a politician, but sitting as I did on the, um, Uh, President of the Association of Realtors, it was amazing how political something as simple as, look, let's figure out housing for people that need housing. Let's figure out homelessness. Let's figure out congestion. I mean, these shouldn't be partisan topics. They should be topics that everybody wants to join the conversation constructively to solve. And so do I think we need, you know, more trains and things running all the way out to, you know, 48th Avenue? Absolutely. And we need to look at, you know, infill of you know, when you look at all the problems in last year the big fight over development in the Mission District. Yeah. You know, when they started building high-rises on 3rd Street and on Harrison and in areas where there was no neighborhood It didn't matter. Nobody cared. As a matter of fact, it kind of brought life to those neighborhoods. It brought housing closer to the ballparks and the waterfront and, you know, downtown San Francisco so people people could work. Exactly. And not use transportation. But when you go into an established neighborhood like the Mission and you start building, you know, 300 unit buildings, it does have an immediate effect on that neighborhood. And so I'm a fan of building, but building intelligently and building infill. So, for example, if you've got, you know, Geary Boulevard and Clement, where you've got, you know, four, three and four story buildings, and then there's a lot of two story, two unit buildings. Why not incent those two-unit buildings to combine or to build up or to add and build up the density in areas that are already transportation corridors and, and give those people an opportunity to take part in adding housing Um, while not changing the character of the neighborhood. As a matter of fact, you'd revitalize some of these neighborhoods because, you know, you drive down Balboa today, there's still a ton of empty storefronts. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, because we're sort of on the back end of this economic wave that's hit us for the last five years and really, you know, changed our city dramatically, you're starting to see these same vacancies on Fillmore Streets and Chestnut Streets because the rents have just gotten too high.
0: Mm. What do incentives look like? That's an interesting thing. Like yeah. to take a two-unit building and incentivize the, uh, the owner of the building to build another couple of stories on that. What would that yeah. look like? So it could be a lot of things, and I've thought a lot about it. It could be
1: um, tax credits, no, no increased tax uh, basis for the addition. So, if you had a building and you bought it in 19, you know, 80, and you paid, you know, seven hundred thousand dollars for it, and then you went to add a seven hundred thousand dollar remodel or million dollar remodel, no new taxes. It wouldn't get reassessed, but you'd be adding housing, and then maybe perhaps no rent control for that new housing, so that uh, the old housing is under rent control, the the, the original right. two units, but whatever you add is not under rent control again, so that. A mom and pop can derive a return for having spent money to improve and increase, A, the value of that property. Now, eventually, all these properties trade, and the city gets the full benefit, because at that point, they will get the tax revenues from the new full price of the property. Um, And quite frankly, there's a lot of people, a lot of economists, um, not just real estate people, who will show you the argument of why rent control doesn't work? It arbitrarily keeps many rental units low, mm-hmm. but it keeps all the other rental units that come to market high mm-hmm. because there's not the turnover. When mm-hmm. you go to cities where there's turnover, rents are more even. They don't have these big fluctuations. I've
0: read that a lot, and it's hard to get that case acro- across to people who are so or are just adamantly for. The, you know, or pro tenant.
1: Absolutely, and we're working. Um, the San Francisco Association of Realtors sponsored a bill that's on the uh, ballot next week, which would allow the um, income uh, to double for those that would apply for moderate income housing. So, for example, if right now I think it's somewhere around fifty to sixty thousand dollars combined that uh, a family can earn in order to qualify for uh, subsidized housing for the city. Mm-hmm. Why not make that what two? teachers or two firefighters make and make it double, $120,000. And it's an easy ballot measure. I think it will pass. Um, But it's just common sense. If we give more of our you know, civil servants, our teachers, our our first responders, the opportunity to live in the city. And we invest and build and give incentives to add housing and not add one bedroom condominiums at $1,400 a foot and add 160 of them. Add family housing, add units that are, you know, 15 to to, to 2,200 square feet where you can have two, three children and and go to the public schools and, 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 and remake neighborhoods.
0: Mm-hmm. I like when they take chunks of land, like here in the mission and do yes. those 300 unit buildings. I always kind of um, would love to see just new single family little lots yes. split up. I don't know how I've ever thought about monetizing that. Perhaps there is higher value. I mean, clearly there's not because you can go five stories up, but there must be a scenario where it does make sense to go ahead and make traditional lots and get family housing. Yes. Do you include family housing in your mind for like say three units or sorry, three bedroom units and above? Do you Absol- call that family? Yeah, absolutely. The problem is
1: most of the new construction is all called luxury, meaning it's expensive. Yeah. And you know, because the price has been rising so fast here, I mean, you know, Twenty First and Guerrero selling out at fourteen hundred dollars a foot. It's just not affordable for 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 most families. So we really need the city to work with the developers. And work with their own product that they're building because the city right now is building housing, but it's costing them on average $800,000 a unit because they don't have a free bidding process. They 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 basically assign the units to uh, the buildings to the people that want to uh, the developers that want to have them built. We've got another ballot measure that's again on next Tuesday, which just says, look, let's have fair bidding so that you've got multiple developers bidding to build San Francisco city properties mm-hmm. so that it's the average of $500,000 a unit instead of their average of $800,000 a unit. Well, guess what? You can build 50% more housing for the, for the same dollars spent. So it's just a more intelligent way. And it's, it's hard. I mean, I can't fault Mayor Lee. He's done a great job. Um, But we really need strong leadership from people who don't care about their jobs and really care about the city.
0: Um, so what do you think about the millennials or anybody who's just trying to get their foot into owning real estate? Yeah. Where do you see opportunities? You know, has the, the bus can't have already taken off from the station completely. So what neighborhoods, um, what do you suggest for people?
1: Good question. So I was no different than these millennials when I was in my 20s. And I entered the real estate world because I thought ultimately to build wealth, you had to have real estate, and part of that was, yes, I was selling real estate during the day back then, um, but, but I wanted to get into buying you know, an asset that was undervalued for whatever, the neighborhood, the condition, the quality, um, the building it was in, the block it was on, and adding value, and hence getting that sweat equity back out of that property. No different, but on a much smaller scale than what you've done so amazingly well, and I would say the same to them, don't, don't be disparaged, go out and, you know, put your dollars and cents together, figure out what you can afford and what you can do, and then go see what fits that.
0: What's the first step for people? It's like kind of figuring out, okay, what was the loan I can get? What do you tell them to do first?
1: Yes. Always start with the facts. Yeah. You know, how much money do you have for a down payment? Mm-hmm. How much money can you borrow from, you know, a family member, a father, a brother, um, how long do you need to borrow that money for?
0: Mm. On that topic, so yes. maybe, maybe people don't know that, that, there's only a certain amount that you can borrow. Is there? Or, is it, or it has to be from a parent? Or, or what are the qualifications of who you can borrow money from when you're trying to get a loan?
1: Yeah, so lenders have different uh, different requirements. If you're going to someone like a First Republic, they're a portfolio lender, which is just a fancy word, which means they keep their loans. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to package that loan and have it fit in a mm-hmm. Bank of America, Wells Fargo box mm-hmm. that they're gonna go resell on the secondary uh, l- lending market. So if you go to a, a bank like that, no problem. You can, you know, have your parents be co-signers. Uh, you can, you know, have them co- help you with the down payment. Um, and then other banks have, have other requirements, but there are loan products even today, even after the the disastrous, you know, fall of 2008, 2009, um, that still do 3% down. So, I mean, if you've got a good job, you could wow. put 3% down and still buy a piece of property and interest rates are at, you know, still 30, 40 right. year lows.
0: Three percent down. Yes. yes. What are you talking about, Willis? That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so okay, you start with facts, and then I have this theory that sort of you know the the best neighborhoods will continue to grow faster than uh, the other neighborhoods. Yes. Right. So I'll prefer to buy in a principal area. And stuff myself into a small spot yes. versus a bigger spot in Outer Glen Park or something.
1: Buy the worst property in the best neighborhood you can. Yeah. And I totally agree. Right now, you can do no wrong, right? Everything that comes on the markets seemingly has been selling for the last five years. And you've seen this push from, you know, through the Mission District, through, you know, now Visitation Valley and down Third Street Corridor and areas where, you know, housing used to be $400,000, $600,000. Now it's seven, eight, nine hundred thousand $900,000. Mm -hmm. Bernal Heights, I mean, there was a $4 million transaction in Bernal Heights, so you've seen these these ceilings get pushed and pushed and pushed. Mm -hmm. Your safest bet is always to buy a tried and true neighborhood and and really the the worst house you can buy on the best block. Mm -hmm. Um, That old adage of location, 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 has never changed and will never change. And the other thing to consider is, you know, when you start looking at amenities like parking, you know, we're a transit-first city. That's what they've dubbed it. And they're building buildings, large buildings, with no parking requirement because they want to push the citizens of the city to use public transportation. All good, all, you know, nice and well, and, and in a perfect utopian world, that's great. But people have cars. And when the markets turn and you try to sell a condominium that doesn't have parking... Probably not going to sell because yeah. the, when people, when buyers they start, have more getting, choice all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I totally get it. Exactly.
0: What about the guys who just sold their company? You know, and they're like flooded with now a new opportunity, and yes. they're you know this is their first step into, How do you advise those? those guys. Yeah. First off, take
1: a deep breath. What really Me or like that? Yeah, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> take a deep breath because I think the hardest part about the money that's been created, uh, for these millennials and, and for anybody in this tech tech world is the money comes so fast and it's so much that they really don't know what they're supposed to do with it. And everything from making bad investments to doing nothing. And, and both are probably bad, right? You've got, these, you've got all this money, and, and what do you do to create wealth? And I think one of our you know, key differentiators, certainly Pacific Union, that, that I have worked on for the last seven years since we bought the company and took it private, is getting our real estate professionals to step away from transactionally oriented once every seven years when someone buys or sells to being fiduciaries. Expert advisors that look at the entire picture of their clients and advise them, much like a money manager, every day, every week, every month, every quarter, every year, so there is a trust that is built up and they know when they come and ask a question, it's not over a commission, it's really what is best for this family, this individual, this you divorcee this, you know, widower, you know, really think. And example comes right to mind. We had a, a wonderful um, lady come to us last year, very important apartment that she owns here in the city. And her husband had passed away in January and it was about July. And I told her, I said, look, I, you can't even talk to me for a year. I mean, you you need to, you know, get your life refocused. You, you've, you were married for your entire, you know, entire adult life to a wonderful man. And I I know this home reminds you of him right now, but you need to get back to normalcy. You need to get your life back and you need to start entertaining and and doing things. And you know what? I'm very proud to say next week I'm going to a cocktail party at her home. And I'm I'm very excited about that. So I think a true professional and expert advisor is not going to just, gee, wow, our firm can sell this very expensive apartment. No, it's that wouldn't have been the right thing for this person because she'll never be able to get this apartment back because it 's so unique and special and unfortunately expensive um, that it was really about getting her to think about you know that not not the next year of her life and how sad it is to be in that home but the next ten and twenty years where she has to thrive and, and be
0: that 's a really uh, grown up and altruistic way of of counseling somebody i mean that's that 's not easy for everybody
1: it 's definitely not easy it 's easy for me because I fortunately out of the last 30 years in real estate the last 20 I've really sat in a different seat I don't make money buying and selling real estate and getting commissions for clients you know I started Sotheby's and then we bought Pacific Union so I have these amazing agents that I really I probably speak more at office meetings about philosophy and attitude and gratitude and taking care of yourself as far as health and exercise and being so that you can go and take care of these incredible clients that need us because you know real estate is the single largest investment most of them ever make it is very stressful everyone that's been through it knows that and ultimately you know I'm working with my team to figure out how do we alleviate some of the pain points in the real estate transaction you know that that have been there for decades and decades and decades. That aren't there when you go to buy a car. That aren't there when you go to you know you know do other expensive things. Um, because really, I mean, we should be taking care of our clients in a much more holistic way than we even are now.
0: How much do you counsel your agents, or how much do the agents know about someone's even financial position? You know, like, hey, bro, that might be too much of a stretch. Yes, you know, that must be a, a big thing, or 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 perhaps not, but. Because not everybody wants to be totally forthcoming with everybody they come across. And are all their service professionals, they don't want to know, they don't want to tell everything. Yes. But, but you've got to probably maybe do you have to coach your agents to help people pull back the throttle versus sometimes maybe they need to put the throttle down? Great question. Um, it's certainly personal
1: and it certainly uh, depends on what age group they are. The millennials have no problem printing out a copy of their bank statement that says they have $23 million sitting at Wells Fargo. there's, There's no, maybe because it came in more easily, and I don't mean easily, like they didn't work hard or didn't have an incredible idea or didn't work every day for five years, but when I talk to a lot of these millennials, You know, sometimes I say to them, you know, your mom and dad worked 30, 40 years and maybe have a million dollars in the bank. And you're talking about, you know, your down payment is four or five million dollars on this property. So part of it is just perspective of where you come from. And each person, because they're individual, you need to take. A, a, probably a little bit different approach with each in general I will say that as a real estate professional especially as I've described it not the I meet you at an open house we're doing a transaction two weeks later because I found you a home but the true relationship it's amazing how much you know about that family and the finances are just a small portion it's the children it's the schools it's the dreams it's the where do you want to be and why are you buying this home and how long do you want to be in this home and and how do we help you create wealth out of this home by knocking out this wall and bringing in Green Couch to do amazing stuff to add value to that asset. Um, so, so it's, it's probably different with each people. Now, the older generation, they're, they're not as forthcoming with their finances. And that may be simply setting that up with the first republics of the world with, you know, the, the other great banks, uh, in the city and, and, and having them have that one on one conversation and then getting a report back. This client feels most comfortable in this price range. And that's enough. Mm -hmm. That's enough.
0: Um, do you find that people, uh um, just kind of um, sort of self-select like that's a little bit I-, I can afford it but you know it's not for me. Dude, Abs- they absolutely, they must like that must just lead you there. Yeah, absolutely. Lead your there. What's
1: interesting about again we do a lot of different types of sales so everything from you know commercial on down to you know strictly residential and most of our business is residential. Residential is interesting because you can't sell someone their home. What yeah. I mean by that is when what for 30 years when someone walks into a place they feel they can put their head on that pillow every night 365 a year you just see it in their eyes so really ours is about you know our job is about making sure their eyes wide open making sure we're negotiating the best possible price make sure we are doing all the right inspections you know really just knowing so we're really guiding them and preparing them for this purchase and so it's 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 just a little bit different. It's not like coming onto a car lot and do you want the red one or the yellow one and I'm yeah. gonna sell, sell, sell on the horsepower and this. It's it's so much more nuanced because everyone has their own idea of home. If I asked you to close your eyes and think of home Well, gosh, if you grew up in Louisiana and, you know, under banyan trees, your picture of home would be totally different than my stuck up next to another house, Victorian in San Francisco where I grew up. It just, Mm -hmm. so so it's so individual and that's probably the best part of our business is the individuality of taking people's dreams, taking people's goals and taking their financial interests and, and truly working to make sure that you put them in the right home.
0: And you've, so the skill set of emotional curation of people and where they're going. And then you also have to be somewhat of an engineer. Yes. And understand like tactile building practices. Yes. It's a pretty broad range of skill sets you're, you're, you're asked to perform or your agents are asked to perform.
1: And that's why you see there's realtors that have unbelievable reputations. And then there's others that quite frankly, you know, it's the, 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 uh, bearers to entry for this business are not very high. So you end up with individuals that they may make lots of money, but it doesn't mean they're a great real estate professional. Um, you know, you, you want those ones that really do have the skill set, the knowledge, the care. I call them the givens. I won't even look at hiring someone if they don't have the givens, meaning they understand property values. They understand construction. They understand title and escrow and all the different ordinances in San Francisco. They understand the neighborhoods. They understand the blocks by blocks. They understand the schools. These are all givens. If you don't have those, then what do you possibly have to to share and give to your client?
0: Mm -hmm. And then what are, in terms of design, what are buyers and families and... Others, what are you seeing? What trends do you see for, yeah. you know, and, and not the, the developer special. Yes. Great the, question. The good stuff.
1: Yeah, great question. With so design. you, you let it. Um, you are a pioneer, as you know. The Dwell magazine that I used to see in London, you know, 15 years ago that you didn't see here. And I don't know, if, you know, Wallpaper, Dwell, all these modern magazines. Modern didn't used to sell here. We would have a William Worcester on broadway street Mm -hmm. and it just wouldn't have a big draw i mean literally 15 years ago you know if you got one or two offers you'd be lucky but it's interesting because today's buyers just there's some sort of pushback they don't want quote unquote their parents home so there is a huge push and has been for this modern this box this glass this openness this this taking a you know five room victorian and taking all the walls out so there's two or three rooms on the ground floor um so they can entertain and just all be in one space I think at some point, it starts to revert back. Um, You would know way better than me because this is what you eat and breathe and and advise on every single day. But um, I've heard of late uh, the silly statement of, hey, look, these guys and gals are traveling all week for their jobs at these tech companies, staying in W hotels. When Mm -hmm. they get home, they don't want to feel like they're still staying at a W hotel. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, so much of the design of the last six years is really just D- W Hotel style, yeah. and um, and I think people are getting tired of it, and I think people will start to pay again for you know the charm and the yeah. and, and 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 you know just the uniqueness that seemingly has been taken out of so many of these renovations.
0: Yeah, we're definitely even the last four years we've been at least peppering and the crown molding, but our version of crown molding and, you know, we're doing details, we're doing layers. Uh, It just feels, I think in one word, it just, it feels more homely and I think that's a place to recharge. Yes. and so, what does your own house look like? What's your design taste? What's, <laughs> I, I think I may have seen it once, or yes. Seen... So, um, you know, like many people, I moved up
1: and moved up and moved up. I started with two condominiums on on Clay Street that I begged, borrowed, and uh, didn't steal, but that's how the saying goes. To to get those properties, and then I I gutted them. I moved the kitchens. I moved the bathrooms. I added half bathrooms. Um, and funny enough, that was my first project, and it's exactly one block from where I ended up building my home, you know, 20 years later. So my very first project is exactly one block away from me. Um, so my home was a 2,500-square-foot, was a uh, you know, row house Victorian on Washington Street and um, spent two years uh, going down, going up, and now it's, you know, 4,800-square-feet. And it is definitely a modernized victorian, so it 's open and contemporary, but with you know seven piece crown moldings that are twelve inches um, tall, it has you know ten foot doors that are all you know solid and, and beautiful, um, tons of detailing and and different woodworking. I had some unbelievable um, just finished carpenters that were very, very good at, you know, adding in details that you just don't see dropped ceilings with coves and up lighting and down lighting and, um, you know, layered, layered lighting and, and sound and all, all those things that I think people don't pay attention to that are so important.
0: Is it dark? Is it like Navy blue or something? That I...
1: No, uh, no I know, white. Uh, it's, it's, gr- it's grays. It's got a huge 10 foot by five foot wide red door. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, it's very contemporary and 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 wonderful, and it's just the perfect house for our kids.
0: That's cool. And yeah. you've been there for how long?
1: Uh, we finished it. I bought it in two thousand five. We moved in in two thousand seven.
0: Do you intend to move out? Like, are you a twenty-year house kind of guy? Are you this is a Rolling old, Stone? Yeah. You know, trying yeah. to.
1: This is the, the longest house. I've ever been in a house. Um, and again, it's it's a city thing, right? Because it's hard to move when you get your tax base. Because oh once your tax base is set, the idea of going and moving, it just it, it becomes expensive. Um, so the city doesn't do a particularly good job of 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 pushing people to move on. Um, That being said, it's, it's kind of the perfect home. And since we built it, it has literally everything we need Mm -hmm. Um, and it's well located. So I, I I used to um, buy and move every two years because it paid Mm -hmm. to do that. But now that I've got the children, it seems like the stability of the home um, is important.
0: Um, What age were they when you moved in?
1: Uh, So that was 10 years ago. So four and like one.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Little. I have an eight and a five-year-old, you know? Yes. And um, I was thinking, do I have one more move in me? You know? Yes. <laughs> I think I don't. I think my wife's pretty digging on the
1: I think the what spot. I've been doing, and, and again, just to put my money where my mouth is, you know, when people ask me, is it a good time to buy? It seems like a crazy time to buy. The market's at an all-time high. I've been buying buildings um but buildings that are investment that are units three four unit buildings that i can buy um you know hold and pay down with the rent dollars mm-hmm. um so You're still
0: doing that right now like something yeah this i just year?
1: i just closed escrow on one uh four months ago on uh union uh a tailor at, at union
0: uh-huh and so what's the process for you know people who are still building their their wealth not the the guys who just sold the company and you know, are sitting with their their fat Wells Fargo account. Um, uh, but the guys who are doing like sort of one block at a time. Yes. You know, uh, walk us through that. Yeah. You know?
1: It's it's again, no different than you and no different than me. You, you've got to have goals. You have to begin with the end in mind of where you're really trying to end up. You have to look at your risk factor. Uh, my risk factor before I was married, I had children, obviously much mm-hmm. higher risk factor. I didn't, I didn't mind buying a property and thinking, well, if I, if the, if the, fix up on this doesn't work. I can always move in and live there. So I think it's really about understanding your goals and then getting really smart people around you, like in life in general, right? The more you surround yourself with people that are a lot smarter than you, the the more you learn, the more you flourish, the more you strive. And when it comes to real estate, I mean, before the internet, when I was growing up, the people that created wealth in this world in this nation, they didn't, they, they did have great day jobs. I mean, f- for a long time, the railroads did very, very well, but the robber barons of the world, the Huntington's, the floods, they didn't make their money on the railroad. They made their money on the real estate. The railroads were tracks were laid on. Mm-hmm. So I decided early on, no matter what my day job was, I needed to understand real estate. And I would say that's true with, with, with any of these young people, you know, real estate should be part of your portfolio. And I would say your principal residence before a second secondary residence um, because secondary residences are typically more volatile when markets turn than principal residences so sacrifice and get into something um, better than you know just doing nothing Mm -hmm. especially in a city where the rents are so high
0: yeah Um, what have you do you uh, like the saying, playing your own
1: sandbox? I mean, it's good to know what you know. So, you know, for me, it's easy because my sandbox is real estate. So, mm-hmm. but I'm paying. But I mean, a no
0: sandbox, even like within a, uh, a geographical area, a two hour drive, like, yeah. would you buy anything past a certain area that you couldn't go fix in the middle of the night? Great point. Know. I personally want to only own
1: things that I can drive to and preferably in less than an hour because I think other than that, you can't really manage it and keep an eye on it. You certainly can if you want to be a detached investor and you want to go into a fund or go buy housing in El Paso, Texas where they've got unbelievable schools and students and people to pay rent and a high-tech business. I'm not saying don't do that, but I wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. I would rather buy something that is more of a headache, something more, uh, that I have to manage and deal with, but that's closer. And that I understand because it's in my sandbox, as you say, the property values, the area, what's pushing it, what's not pushing it. Um, and there are great opportunities. I mean, you asked earlier about, you know, the city and areas of opportunity. I think, I think the areas of opportunity are, going back to the neighborhoods that have been a little bit forgotten. I mean when you can buy a condominium in Pacific Heights at seven hundred and eight hundred dollars a foot or go to mission and you know nineteenth for fourteen hundred dollars a foot why wouldn't you go and buy the Pacific Heights property? I mean, it's just a better value long-term. And the same with secondary homes. I mean, you look at markets like Sonoma. Sonoma is still not back above where it was in 2007. And that was a market that got just crushed.
0: Sonoma, the uh, The the whole county? county. Yeah, the
1: whole county. So there's there's great opportunities. And again, we're going to have another slowdown. I mean, the election will pass. Hopefully. And, um, you know, interest rates will eventually go up. I've been wrong for years. I, I, I've thought for years they would be going up, but the government has chosen to arbitrarily keep them low by, by of course, buying long bonds, which has kept the, the, the bonds low. Um, so, you know, it, that time will come. And when it comes, there'll be other opportunities for buyers.
0: Um, everybody always asks, you know, when is it going to slow down? Uh, when, Just, it, when is it going to pass? Yeah.
1: I think the normalization started uh, a year ago, May. So I think we are probably already... Uh,
0: 2015 May? Yes. Uh-huh.
1: I think that was the high watermark for the number of offers we were mm-hmm. receiving on mm-hmm. properties on the market. I think you've seen a normalization, and it's, and it's, and it's a few things. It's the stock market was kind of bouncing around a little bit, especially at the end of the year, beginning of this year. Mm-hmm. You have buyer fatigue. You have where buyers have just been looking for so long and I'm they're out. so frustrated. Yeah. You have uh, the affordability index, which is just how many, even at these incredibly low interest rates, what percent of the population can afford the median house? That number's under 20% right now. That's a pretty disturbing number when you consider rates are to 40 or low, yet only less than 20% of the people that work and live in San Francisco can afford the median house. So those are figures that, I mean, again, as a city, as a community, uh, uh, you know, we, ha- we have to wrestle with them and help solve these problems by providing answers. And again, it's, it's infill. It's not huge projects. It's, it's infill. It's, it's credits. It's, it's, it's getting the mom and pops involved and not just the big developers.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, every homeowner wants the prices to t- keep climbing, all the new buyers want them to kind of settle down. I mean, in your business, you'd want them to keep climbing. Um, Not necessarily. A, no, well, I'll tell well, you. I guess you, yeah, you, you been doing this, trade
1: for, for 30 years. I've been in this business and to quite frankly, I don't like buyer's markets and I don't like seller's markets and we're usually in one or the other, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is if it's a buyer's market, the buyer has all the power and there's, Unusual requests made and longer escrows uh, and uncertainty because the so buyers f- have the power. And then the seller's market, which we've been in for quite a while, there's a greed that just grows <sighs> and the next property is more expensive than the last and the next one more yeah. expensive than that. And, 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 and then the expectation of the sellers is, well, my house is better than that house. It should sell for more. But. The markets really don't work that way. I mean, you have to have buyers and you have to have sellers. And the more equilibrium there is between those two, the more, I believe, fair the market is and the more even. And you can bring in a buyer and put in an offer and have inspection contingencies. Oh, wow, what a concept. Gee, I get to inspect what I'm about to spend a million dollars on? That should be almost mandatory we shouldn't be transacting real estate without buyers having the opportunity to do inspections and you'd be shocked how many people in the last seven years have bought properties without inspections and it's just it's not advisable Um, and so with an equalized market where you've got a balance of supply and a balance of demand you just end up with a more sane smart market yes (laughs) Yeah. yeah
0: Yeah, and not as much, many hurt feelings. Yes. And when it's the buyer's market, I'm sure like the sellers are just, just bummed. You know, uh, one of my friends has the saying, "Good for me, good for you, good for everybody." Yes. Like that's how you want to close a deal. Yes. Or you want that's how you have a transaction. Yes. Um, and then so, but what about uh, somehow you know raising, I guess, wages across the board in San Francisco? That would help more people get into housing. Maybe that push housing prices higher. Is that even possible? I mean, creating better jobs, creating more jobs—is that a problem?
1: Well, when you think about San Francisco, and I'm not an economist, but I think we've added something crazy, like seven thousand jobs in the last two years. That's a tremendous, and those are high-paying jobs. I mean, those are six-figure jobs. So, unfortunately, the equation side is not the demand the equation side that's not working right now is the supply. So until wow. we do something about more affordable and I don't mean affordable meaning low income although we certainly need that as well, but more affordable housing for firefighters and police and nurses and teachers and doctors, you just you're going to continue to see an outflow of those individuals. And look, this is a scary thought, but most of our first responders do not reside in San Francisco anymore. In San Francisco, mm-hmm. when I was growing up, if you were a policeman, you lived probably in the same neighborhood where your precinct was. Mm-hmm. Today, that's not the case. They're in Novato. They're in. They're in different parts of of of, of southern Marin and and um, northern Marin because it's just more affordable and the schools are better and they don't have to take their entire paycheck to send their child to school. So you have to solve the supply side and it's, we need to come up with a comprehensive, it may not be popular, but intelligent plan. And this gets to my sort of biggest problem with the city, which is the mayor has allowed this board of supervisors to work well together, but they work in fiefdoms. And at my company, we actually have a saying, no fiefdoms, no castles. And what we mean by that is everyone has to work together and play together at my company. The city, and if you talk to, to Mayor Lee about this, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll balance it by saying it's good to let Scott Wiener in Eureka Valley pass uh, 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 ordinance that you can add an accessory dwelling unit, because then we can see in his district if it worked. And if it works, now we've got a little test case, and we can go roll it out to the rest of the city. Now, I see the logic there. But the problem is, is Scott Wiener rolls that out. And guess how many people applied for accessory dwelling units during the, the year that he had that program? Eight. Eight, yeah. eight. So, so it had no meaningful impact because no one knew how to implement it because it was only there. I hired two architects, both of which said it can't be done, and then I finally hired a third architect, which was the architect for the city pamphlet that wrote the EDU, the Accessory Dwelling Unit, legislation, so that they could see if I could do it, and they said, yes, you can. So here's someone who's in real estate, who it took me the tenacity of going through three architects and finding the one that wrote the pamphlet to even start my process to get something done. So I would say it's great that we've got a board of supervisors that works well together and is letting each of them do what they want to do within their fiefdoms, within their districts. But at the end of the day, that's not leadership and that's not solving real problems. We need the board to get together and to think holistically about the whole city, and not the whole city for the next four years, that the next mayor's in office, but for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Like running a company, you need to look at the planes in front of you that you have to walk tomorrow, you need to look at the mountains you need to climb over the next three years, and you need to look into the stars of where you want to be long, long term. And if you're not doing that as a business or certainly as a city, I don't know how you survive with the way this world is changing. And we need government in San Francisco that's not always running for office. We need them to implement what is a smart plains, mountains, sky, stars plan for this incredible city. Or we'll never get there. We'll never get there. We have to start now.
0: That's great. And who are you supporting on some of these races uh, do, you want to, do you want to say that?
1: Scott Weiner the- for sure. Yeah. For sure. He has been um, unbelievably even-minded on almost any decision. I met over the last years with many of the Board of Supervisors for different legislative pieces that we were proposing uh, from the Board of Realtors, and there are... Uh, just like in life, probably there, there are individuals you sit down and they're inquisitive, they're intelligent, yeah. they ask questions and they want to learn and then they make their decision. Doesn't mean it's the decision you want, but but you know that they've weighed it and thought about it. And there are others that it is 100% political. W- what is going to help me? And, and it's, it's just not right or good for our city.
0: Totally. Um, okay, last question. Uh, we talked about your house a little bit, but what's your favorite room in your house and why
1: so it's i'm split on that and i'll say i would say off the top of my head it's the kitchen and probably because the kitchen is where everything always happens so the kitchen is where every time i come home if it's the middle of the day and i'm running in or out or something that nature my wife is usually at her little nook working in the kitchen if it's you know, after work and I come home, the two children are in the kitchen doing homework mm-hmm. and I can sit down in Mason's spot where he sits at the counter, you know, near where all the cooking goes on. Or I can go sit down at the kitchen table where my daughter always sets up and does her homework. Um, it's the place where, you know, when your friends open, uh, friends over, you open the bottle of wine in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um I, we love cooking. I, I'm Italian by uh, by heritage. So, you know, we love cooking and, and having people over. And so the kitchen is really always, right, the heart. It's where you start every day. And, you know, it's usually where you end every day. Um, the other favorite place is um, we have a family room. And that family room is is you know chaotic and fun and crazy and it's where we lay down and as a family and watch movies and you know my kids ride those things you're not supposed to have in your houses those segway things around the huh. family room and you know we have a pinball machine and and all the games are there so there's stacks of games and there's always some game set up and i have a exercise bike up there so i usually start you know my morning there at 6am just trying to wake up get through my emails and so that's why i say it's a toss up one is a more relaxing sort of recovery fun laughing space, and the other is just where where I know is this heart of the of the of the house where we disconnect
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, patrick you're such a whip smart dude, and yeah. you're so positive we didn't even get to. Uh, dive into some of those po- uh, those topics, but I thank you so much for coming. I told you this would be awesome. It's fun. And you know what? I was very nervous, but uh, no, it was great, great, great speaking. Oh, you me. have brilliant content, and I think yeah. people will uh, enjoy learning. It's it's great information. Thank Cheers, you, Cheers, Patrick. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you so much. Yeah.